Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Tazneem Zara Hussein will join us to discuss only the longest threads. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, a new book has been written, Only the Longest Threads, which presents a dramatic and lucid account of the great breakthroughs in the history of physics from classical mechanics, electromagnetism, relativity, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, and string theory, each from the viewpoint of a fictional witness to the events. The author, Dr. Tasneem Zara Hussein, is a writer, educator, and Pakistan's first female string theorist. She holds a PhD from Stockholm University and did postdoctoral research at Harvard University. She's actively involved in science outreach and frequently delivers talks about theoretical physics to students and lay audiences. She's also helped establish the LUMS School of Science and Engineering in Lahore, Pakistan. And again, her new book is called Only the Longest Threads. And Dr. Hussein, we're very pleased to welcome you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, Only the Longest Threads. You really have a unique look at uh, the history of phys- physics. I'm, I'm curious why you decided to write the book. So I'm a theoretical physicist, and for a long time, I've even when I was in graduate school, there would be this question when friends or people you met socially would ask you, you know, what is it that you're really doing? And I always found it kind of difficult to explain my research because given that I work in theoretical physics, there wasn't uh, much that I could point to that was concrete. You know, I couldn't say, well, this is what I build and this is what I make. And so I had to get into these abstract ideas And I could just see from the look on people's faces that they weren't necessarily understanding why I did this. Why is it that you sit there and you calculate these things all day and you think about these really abstract ideas? And what is it that makes it so much fun for you? Because it's something that I was intensely passionate about. And people could necessarily understand what it was about these equations that got me that excited. So I wanted to convey what that passion is and why we feel it. And I wanted to show the human engagement with these ideas, not just the ideas themselves, but what they really mean to us. So for me, it was a way of showing what it feels like for me to be a scientist. Uh, certainly not a, a common uh, approach and create viewpoint of fictional characters that are witnessing these, these changes. Well, how did you come up again with this, this approach? So fiction, I think, was pretty much... It was almost an obvious choice for me because when I realized that I wanted it to be about the feelings and the emotions and the relationship that we have with science, that was something that's very difficult to do with nonfiction. And like you're saying, it's not a very conventional approach because there are, I mean, I'm a popular science junkie. I read a lot of popular science and I think there are absolutely beautiful books out there that explain the ideas really well. But they're almost always written in third person voice. You know, there's a detachment. The ideas are presented as if there's something in themselves. 
But for me, I always felt like, you know, science isn't something that's revealed to us. I mean, it's something that we go and we pull out of the universe. It's like this game that we're playing all the time. You know, we ask the universe these questions. And um, you know that game 20 questions when you can ask someone questions and all they can do is reply yes and no? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same sort of thing, right, that you ask the universe a question and it's not going to reply in this very detailed manner. I mean, if you say, what is gravity? You're not going to find out the answer. You have to phrase questions in a certain way. You have to learn how to phrase them. And all you're going to get back is, you know, yes, you're on the right track or no, you're not. So it's this emotional relationship. It's this game. It's this, you know, there's this intellectual thrill. And I think all of that is missed out when you write in a third person voice. And that's what I wanted to put back in, which is why I felt like fiction and, you know, so people for me had to be at the center of it. And I wanted all of that to be reflected, which is why I thought that, you know, fiction is the best way to do it. I mean, that's the best way to get into someone's head and feel what they're feeling and think what they're thinking. So that was the reason behind the decision. Well, your your book certainly covers the gamut of physics, everything from classical mechanics to, to string theory. Do you think that some of the topics that were easy to convey in, in the sort of emotional uh, sense than others? Not really, actually. I think for me, what took, I mean, I'm in love with all of these ideas myself, so it didn't really take much, uh, you know, to tap into that excitement. But I think in some ways, it was most challenging to write the first chapter, which is about classical mechanics, because one of the things I wanted to do was to go back in time to when these ideas were new. I think that, you know, if you want to learn a thing really well, it's important to go back to the root and really get into the minds of people who struggled with it, because in some ways, those are the the last people who've really looked at something with an open mind. So, you know, the people who actually arrive at the answer, they're the ones for whom it was still an open question. They're the ones who considered all sorts of options. So now, I mean, 200 or 400 years later, when we sit down and we read about Newtonian mechanics, we don't consider all the other you know, things that could have been. We just learn what is. And I think that, you know, the people who've explored all those things, they've made mistakes, they've gone down the wrong road, it's still a new idea for them, it's still exciting for them. Those are the ones who really, you know, learn how to make it their own. And so I wanted to go back to all these these points in time when these ideas were new and listen to people, you know, coming to grips with these ideas then. So for me, it was the most work to kind of put myself, you know, in the mindset of an English country boy, you know, living in the 1700s. That was the biggest departure from from what I'm used to. So in that sense, I think it took the most work to get into that frame of mind, but it was also extremely rewarding because it gave me a new perspective on uh, things that we take for granted. Well, so all of the uh, advances that uh, you talk about in the book, electromagnetism, relativity, quantum mechanics, slowly redefined our view of the world. Uh, do you think any of those in particular were bigger conceptual leaps than others? I think they're all equally impactful, honestly. And, you know, these aren't the only impactful ideas, obviously. Uh, I had to pick and choose a lot. And even with the theories that I covered, I wasn't able to go into, you know, details of every single thing out there. But I told myself that this is not a textbook. I mean, I hadn't intended it to be something that someone could, you know, read as a substitute for a proper course on physics. It's just 
meant to give you a feel of things. But the ideas that I chose were basically ideas that led to these drastic leaps in understanding. And all of them have this one thing in common is that they trace the history of unification in physics. So basically, you know, throughout history, there have been these almost magic moments where there's been a synthesis and things which had seemed very disparate before, suddenly you see their underlying similarities. And to me, that's something that is just absolutely fascinating because when you're able to see the commonalities between things that otherwise seem different, it's not just that you're linking those two things, but it's that you're seeing hints of a bigger structure. So that's why I chose all of these, you know, these moments to write about. And in that sense, I think they're all equally important because they're all theories that showed us, you know, that there are all these connections and that there's a bigger structure out there. So I think all of them have led to equally big leaps in understanding. There'd be no greater compliment in physics than to have an elegant theory. Exactly, exactly. That's one of the, the physicists' sort of criterion of beauty. But I also think unity is something that is supposed to be an aesthetic criterion pretty much universally. I mean, you know, we almost always seem to find unity a compelling idea. But that's definitely true in physics. What about yourself? Was there any uh, particular moment that galvanized your interest in physics? So for me, I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in physics, but for me it was always this intellectual curiosity, sort of like, you know, puzzle solving. I mean, I like solving all sorts of puzzles, brain teasers, you know, the playing Sudoku, I mean, word puzzles, crosswords, whatever it is, whenever there's some sort of a pattern or some sort of a puzzle, it's something that I've been drawn to ever since I was a kid. And for me, physics was just like a, you know, natural continuation because it seemed like, well, what could be a bigger puzzle than trying to figure out how this world works? So, you know, it's something that's just pretty much always been there. I've been fascinated by uncovering all these hidden patterns and laws and it's just this, you know, giant intellectual game, and it just seems like the the most fabulous and interesting um, game that you could play. Uh, well, you are Pakistan's uh, first female string theorist, and I'm curious how the education in Pakistan for women. Things have, you know, changed a lot in the past sort of almost two decades since I was in high school. But what I can tell you is that I was... Uh, very lucky. I was very privileged. My parents both were highly educated and very sort of forward thinking and they were extremely, both of them have degrees in the humanities and yet all four of us siblings are uh, in the sciences and, you know, they basically encouraged us to do whatever it was that we wanted to do. Uh, so when I decided that I wanted to go in for physics, I was going to this uh, girls' school, which was, you know, an excellent school. But there was no place where, in Pakistan, we have the British educational system, so there are these external exams um, that are called O-levels and A-levels that are administered internationally. And it's basically A-levels corresponds to you know, 13 years of education, and then you go on to college. So at that point in Pakistan, there was no one who was, uh, there was no school or no institution where you could take your A-levels in physics if you were a girl because enough girls just weren't doing that. Now, that I want to just sort of clarify that that doesn't mean that Pakistani girls were not studying physics, because there was also this parallel local system. And in the local system, you know, the local exams and everything, there was this definite physics stream, and a lot of people were going in and doing that. But if you wanted to take the British exams, there was no 
whether you could do that. And so, you know, my parents tried to make arrangements and for me to do that privately and everything, and they were extremely supportive. And then from then on, I went abroad for a while. Um, in school, I have to say that the education was excellent. I mean, physics was not offered at A-level. It was still offered until O-level, which is grade 11, and lots of girls did that. And what was there was really good, but it's just that, you know, this other option wasn't there yet. In the years between then and now, that's changed a lot. I mean, you have hundreds of girls taking their A-level exams in physics. Uh, a lot of them get international distinctions. There have been a lot of universities that have opened up, including uh, the school that you mentioned, the School of Science and Engineering uh, in Lahore that I went to help establish. So there are a whole lot of options now that weren't there before. But I have to say that, you know, I was very lucky in that the options that were available, the quality was excellent. Were there any authors that uh, particularly inspired you? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, again, this is not something that, you know, I had a lot of access to because there weren't many popular science books that I that I had access to in Pakistan. But, um, you know, I read whatever I could get my hands on. So there's James Clyke, and there is Stephen Hawking, of course. And I read, like, a smattering of other authors, whoever I could find. And then as soon as I came abroad and I had access to a whole lot more, then, you know, I just, so when I was, like, in my late teens, then there were so many other authors. So there's people like Brian Green, you know, I discovered Jana Levin. And these are all people I discovered when I was in graduate school, so they still had a lot of impact on me. There's a science essayist called Casey Cole. There's George Johnson, Paul Halpern, Alan Lightman. I mean, Alan Lightman is someone whose work I admire immensely because I think he writes so beautifully and so lyrically about physics. So there's, you know, honestly more authors than I can mention or that I can even think of right now. There are lots and lots of them. After having written this book, do you feel as if you're better able now to convey that enthusiasm about physics to people you meet in conversation? Do they now get it? I think so. I still don't think that there's a, you know, one sentence answer that I can give. But I do think that having thought about all of these things, it's changed my own perspective. I mean, sometimes you feel things, but unless you're forced to vocalize them, you're not always, you know, you don't always have the words at the tip of your tongue. But if you think for a long time about how you want to phrase something, you're able to come up with more efficient formulations, but you also, I think, have more insights. So I do, you know, I hope that I'm able to do a better job now, but I still don't think I could do it in one sentence for the uh, second book. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, the new book is called Only the Longest Threads, and uh, the author is Dr. Uh, Tazneem Zara Hussain. And uh, Dr. Hussain, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you very much. This was so wonderful. Okay. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.